I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. It's episode 107 of R&D in the QC. We're joined by North Carolina Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, as we break down the election results. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Larkin, my trusty sidekick. Well, welcome back to the show. It's been a bit, and we have to welcome special guest, Speaker Moore. Speaker, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. Good to be with you. I tell you, I was watching that intro photo you have of me on there. I'm about 25 pounds lighter there. So I was seeing that, seeing that you know, intro. There's, I had, you know, with my, with, my, oh. with my double chins there, man. I, oh. I, that's encouragement not to go crazy tomorrow at, on Thanksgiving. But uh, good to be on with you guys. Oh, you were throwing shade at one of us for. I for thought we were talking about Larkin. I was like, "You're right." No, 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 no. I was talking year, about Mr. me. No, no, no. Oh, oh. I'm some, kidding. Of those, some of those pictures were absolutely 25 pounds ago for me too. So no, you know, no, no. Now that the one, no, the one where you first came in on me, and I'm like leaned over, you know, hunched, and I kind of look like you know, job of the hut having a bad day with that gavel, you know. So a little better now than then, but hey, but no. I, uh, Part of being in politics is we all eventually just use old pictures of ourselves that are just far too old. Clearly we look like we're like 19, you know, it's just, it's one of the things, right? Well, in politics, well, I don't it know. has a way of aging you much quicker than some other professions, I think. Well, I don't know, as long as you guys aren't running around and like, you know, uh, pull up a uh, high top, high top socks with little stripes on them and stuff, you'll be all right. It's coming back. Oh yeah, it probably is. You never know. So Larkin, why don't you kick us off? We're going to do a, a full election recap for this uh, episode 107 here. But for the beginning, we've got uh, Speaker Moore for a, a few minutes to just talk about um, the General Assembly, kind of what the election recap looks like there. And more importantly, what is what is 2021 look like for you? So perhaps I tee it up at a high level with that kind of question. And I know Larkin has a couple follow-ups as well. Yeah, we know. We appreciate you being here, and we know you're limited on time. But I wanted to get to a couple of things that I think will be important for our listeners to be thinking about as we go into this next session of the General Assembly. Uh, undoubtedly, I'm, I'm sure you were hoping to end up with a different governor to work with. Uh, I'm guessing Governor Cooper was ending, was hoping to end up with a different legislature to work with. And the voters, uh, in their infinite wisdom, have stuck y'all with each other again for another two years. So, what are your hopes in terms of? an issue where you can find common ground, things that y'all can work on. There's obviously going to be things that are probably intractable differences, but um, do you have something in mind as you go into another two years working with uh, Senator Berger and Governor Cooper on something that you think y'all can make some headway on together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and the reality is just like, you know, most of the things you guys deal with on the city council, you know, most things are, are not contentious. Everybody agrees. They're not party. You know, they're, they're just they're just things you have to do to make sure the government gets run and things get taken care of. And so most of what we do is that way. Of course, the thing that got the attention last year was when the with the budget and not being able to get that done and some of all the twists and turns that involved with that. Uh, but I, you know, I did of course uh, talk to the governor uh, the a couple of nights after he won. We talked to each other, both congratulated the other, and 
and both uh, committed to want to work together as much as we possibly can. And so we've got a good track record, for example, on the COVID relief package passed unanimously. Governor signed it to law. So we've got a lot of good uh, foundation to work from going forward. Some things that I think we can work on together going forward, I really think we'll come together on some kind of bond that'll involve uh, education construction, both higher ed as well as community college and K-12, and as well as some transportation infrastructure. We know that transportation demands are significant. I mean, right there in the Queen City, I'm, I'm 30 minutes away from you here in Kings Mountain. Um, the, the demands that, are, that continue to, to be there, we've got to find ways to do what, we're, do what we can to expand when it comes to road construction. And so we know some transportation bonds will help. Those are a few things, but I really think focusing on that. And then of course, the second round of whatever COVID relief needs to look like. We don't know what the feds are gonna send down. We know they're, we think they're gonna probably send something and we certainly are gonna need it. And, uh, and I hope that we'll be able to come together and get something done unanimously there as well. Do you think that, I mean, one of the issues that continuously has come up on both sides of the aisle uh, in Raleigh, do you think, is there something that if, if Governor Cooper and uh, Democratic legislators came and said, you know what, here's the thing that you guys, and I'm, I guess I'm asking what that thing might be if it exists, here's the thing you guys have wanted to make headway on for a long time, and the thing that Democrats have continuously said they wanted to make headway on was Medicaid expansion. Does that thing exist? Is there a way to try to bridge that gap, especially given the, the current state we're in in a, in a pandemic, that we could find a way to expand Medicaid if Democrats were willing to give on something else? Or do you think that's one that's just not going to find a way to get done? I think that the, I think that as far as a blanket expansion of Medicaid that has been requested by the governor, I don't think the votes are there to make that happen. And I don't, I don't know what you, I don't think you could put enough sprinkles on that cupcake to make it, to make it sell. They just, there's no way to get there. There are certainly some ways that we can do some things, I believe, to try to help what I call the working poor. Uh, those who are working, but fall ju you know, just outside of the parameters of, of what's allowed for them to qualify for Medicaid right now. Uh, I've talked to folks who want to try to find ways to address them. There are a couple of options. One, of course, is some type of modified Medicaid modification, but another is changes to the, the um, under the Affordable Care Act with the subsidy program and the, sub, and the uh, uh, I forget what it's called, not free insurance, but almost free insurance. There's some things there that we as the state could avail ourselves of and essentially pay that premium, if you will, that the person would have to pay where they can be covered under the uh, uh, under those health plans. So it's not Medicaid, but you're actually getting health coverage for those folks. Th those are some things I think that you, you, you get to the same point, uh, you just get there a slightly different way. But where I think the real sticking point happens is when you're talking about uh, someone who is of working age, has, does not have a dependent child, has no kind of disability, basically nothing limiting that person from being able to self-sustain and take care of themselves. There's a real concern that we should not be making it easy for that person to just be getting free anything because it, it, it disincentivizes you know, working and taking care of oneself when you can. Because at the end of the day, there's limited resources and there are a lot of people who truly cannot take care of themselves through disability or you know, having children that are dependent, whatever it is. And we need to make sure we have the resources for those folks. And if people are able to take care of themselves, they ought to be encouraged to do so. Um, let's switch gears for a second, Mr. Speaker. Um, 
you're very familiar every year with all of the counties and cities across the state that craft their legislative agendas, multiple month process that then kind of leads to us working with our delegation and coming up and kind of essentially lobbying for the things that are important to us. And, uh, you know, we don't have to talk about the well-known moniker of the great state of Mecklenburg and how there's been perceptions in the past and, and things that have worked against us, right, uh, in, this, um, in this Dillon Rule state. Critique this approach for us, if you will. Um, Lark and I used to be co-chairs together of the Intergovernmental Relations Committee. He's still on it, and now I am with my colleague Braxton Winston. And while we were kind of waiting to see how the election sh uh, shook out, because obviously that would change how we might approach it, really one of the things that we've been working towards is how can we come up there not with that great state of Mecklenburg mentality, but with a, here's what we need, but we've been thinking about how it relates to what many others in the state need, particularly two divides, the rural-urban divide and the digital divide. So we've got things, a whole bunch of things, some of which are hot button items, but one that's worked well in the past so far has been, how, do we, how, do, how can we take something like the 74 corridor and not just make it a transportation kind of overhaul, but bring in 5G for autonomous trucking between the state's largest port to the state's largest city and beyond. And not only is that transportation, it then bleeds out the digital divide 5G capabilities into the rural areas, Lumberton and so on and so forth, um, but enables us to, to hit both of those with one thing. Is that too kind of like aspirational soft, uh, or is that something you think could resonate and parlay into bigger things? Well, I, listen, you, you actually are talking about something that I've been talking about quite a bit when it comes to the 74 quarter. Um, I'm in, I represent Cleveland County in the state house. And of course, Shelby's our county seat. And if you, if, if you guys were to get in your cars from, from Charlotte and decide you wanted to drive to Los Angeles right now, you're going to hit traffic lights in one place. Guess where? Shelby, North Carolina. Uh, you, once you go on the other side of Shelby, it's smooth sailing all the way. Uh, that's, you know, Finishing the set, the uh, 74, making it interstate quality uh, from the mountains to the, to the coast is absolutely critical, not just for getting to the beach sooner or anything like that, but because it does a couple of things. One, it takes some of the burden off of I-40, which is already pretty heavily burdened. Second, it opens the southern corridor to exactly what you're talking about, a lot of opportunity for growth where there's a lot of, where there's a lot of opportunity there, a lot of need. I mean, look at Anson County just to the east. That's, uh, that, that really is still having a, lot, it, having a lot of problems, but there's a lot of potential right there. And in some of the other counties, you keep moving east all the way down to Wilmington, uh, but you're absolutely spot on. But I think that is, that is a great way to approach issues because it's not about you know, what's good for just one area, it's what's really good for this entire state and region. But I'll tell you this, you know, I would say, you know, there, there are those who like to say the great state of Mecklenburg and all this kind of stuff. The reality is Charlotte is a major hub and a vital part of this state's economy. It is, it is a key part, of course, the financial sector, uh, so many jobs growing there, not just manufacturing, but the service industry, the uh, you know, technology, bio. Uh, the, the, I'm very excited, for example, Charlotte's they're going to now have a medical school this partnership with Wake Forest, absolutely tremendous. Uh, I mean, it is, it is clearly, it is a, it is a, a, in an international city, it is a world renowned city. And I would submit to you that the better Charlotte does, the better North Carolina does. So I certainly have always supported things that are good for this, this entire state and this region. But I'll tell you this, 
you know, a lot of the growth and a lot of the things that we want to see in the rural areas can be significantly complemented by, by having very robust uh, city centers and robust urban counties. And so the, the balance that we have to strike is to make sure that as the urban areas grow, as the triangle grows, the triad, and, and of course Charlotte, that the rural areas just don't get left behind. And I've pledged to make sure that that does not happen. And so we've done some things that have worked out well, but you know, just exactly what you just talked about is, is a good example of coming up with plans that show how Charlotte is a beneficial part of it. Um, you've, got the, you, you've got the major airport there, you've got all these things that tie together and how it all, it all fits together. So no, I think that's a great way. Sorry for the long answer. No, I think that's a great way to approach something. Like that's that. fantastic to hear and know. Larkin, what do you got? Well, just the, the way that you said that, and I wholeheartedly agree, what's, what's good for Charlotte's good for the state and what's good for any part of the state's good for all of, uh, all of the state. Um, do you think everybody in the legislature feels that way? There's 170 people down there and a majority of them represent smaller counties um, as opposed to more urban counties. And you kind of have maybe one foot on, on each side of that because you're close enough to Charlotte to see the economic engine that it is. Um, and yet you're also close enough to some of those smaller counties that maybe don't feel the direct benefits of that prosperity. Um, certainly there are parts of Northeastern North Carolina that are so far removed from the prosperity of the large cities that it's probably hard for them to, to think in that way, that, that something that benefits the triangle in their case benefits them. Do you, what percentage of the legislature do you think feels that way? Or, or is that the bigger divide than the Republican and, and Democratic divide? You know, I don't know that I could give you a percentage, but there certainly are a lot of folks who, who, who see it that way. Um, there's just no question there are. But, you know, if you look, for example, at northeastern North Carolina, which if you take an area of the state that's the most economically distressed, it, it, it's that area. But then and you have some significant areas, go look at like Columbus County, uh, parts of it, some parts of Robinson, although Robinson is doing well. You can, along that 74 quarter, you know, I mentioned Anson, you can get up in the mountains, you've got some areas. I mean, you've got pockets of areas around the state that are that are trouble. But to your point, northeastern North Carolina is probably the largest cluster where you've had uh, net uh, population uh, loss, where you've had an aging uh, population that stays there. You've had declining tax revenues. You've had closing businesses. Basically, the 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 the, the, the economic tsunami. No one ever wants to see. You guys in the local government know what it, you, know, you have to balance off of property taxes and off of your sales taxes for the most part. And so, if you're in an area where you don't have strong retail sales and you're in an area where the home prices and land values are going down, uh, but people are needing more and more, uh, having greater needs for social services, that math just doesn't work in the long term. And so that's what a lot of these communities are facing. And so we've made a lot of investment there from a number of things. One is, for example, doing things to make sure the hospitals stay open. They have to have access to healthcare because if you wanna bring new companies in and you don't have a hospital, it's kind of a problem. But I think a lot of those, a lot of the folks that live there recognize the benefits that come from, uh, from the triangle. And of course, Greenville is pretty close there. And so a lot of the growth in Greenville and a lot of the success there will emanate out and will help that region of North Carolina. But it's, uh, and it, of course, it's that area that's kind of like right before you get to the coast, but before you get into the cities, it, it's that, that's the area you're talking about. And we, so I'll give you an example of something we did to help out. Uh, in Rocky Mount, there had been a large uh, corporate campus that was empty for years and years. We needed to find a new home for the North Carolina DMV. 
Um, and so real estate, as you know, in Raleigh is really skyrocketing and very expensive. Well, we had this building that we could pick up for pennies compared to what we would have cost to put them in, Ra in uh, Raleigh. And we were able to move DMV there. If folks wanted to continue to live in Raleigh, it's about a 45 minute commute on Highway 64. Uh, and plus it also gives an opportunity to hire people out there where there's a higher unemployment. And so while there was some initial pushback, mainly from folks from Wake and folks that didn't want that transition, and hey, I get it, but uh, it's, it's now seen as a, a pretty successful thing. So we're looking at things like that wherever we can around the state. Well, you mentioned the, the fact that the perspective we have as local elected officials, and I know you came from a party leadership background um, and went straight into state level politics and now have been there for, I believe, 18 years, which uh, mighty impressive. That whole time you have, like Tarek and I have, had to maintain other employment. Uh, I assume full-time employment. I know you're a practicing lawyer. Um, I know you've got involvement with a, uh, or had, or maybe still have involvement with a recycling group. Um, what are you, what's your take? Are, we're actually undertaking kind of a, a look into the way that our government just for the city of Charlotte is structured and whether that's the best practice. And obviously what works for Charlotte in this instance is not going to necessarily work for every municipality in the state of North Carolina, but as a part-time legislator who makes, and you can correct me if it's a, a smidge different than this, about $14,000 a year, I think. Oh yes. Yeah, it's been as huge money, huge, big more money, money more problems is what we always say around that's here. It, that's it. Well, Biggie your, said it. It's true. What's your take on, uh, What's your take on the benefits or the pros and the cons of having full-time elected officials versus part-time, you know, for so many people in a city the size of Charlotte, 15th largest city in the country now, it, it, it does kind of pull you in two directions to have to dedicate the time it takes to be full-time employed somewhere else. And, and this is very much a full-time job. And obviously uh, any legislator in the state of North Carolina is, is spending more time on the job than they get paid for, but, Speaker of the House, I can't imagine how many hours a week it, it takes up. What do you think in terms of, would we be better served either as a state or in large cities like Charlotte with people who are more full-time focused on that role? So, and and, I, and actually I'm in my law office in Kings Mountain. So if anybody needs a lawyer over here, you get a speeding ticket, give me a call, glad to help you out. You know, guys like Tark, they keep me really busy something all the time, it seems, no, that's a joke. Uh, the, the uh, there are really some pros and cons to, to both sides, as you, you can imagine. I, I like, I will say, I do like the part-time model for us as a state legislature. And for now, at least it, it works, but it is a huge demand. And we see folks sometimes that get themselves uh, uh, in, a, in a bind financially, trying to balance those two things, trying to serve those two masters. And it makes it very, it makes it very tough. And a lot of people who would like to run and serve simply can't, but it's, uh, it, it, it's working right now. Uh, but, but it's, we may at some point have to make some adjustments somewhere. There are going to be more and more pressure points as time goes on. Uh, as far as a city council, I'd say, look, it's up to whatever your, whatever uh, your city or any other city wants to do. I, I, I don't, I, I don't have enough knowledge or experience to comment on that, but, but I would say with us, the one good thing about us being part-time legislators is by virtue of having other jobs and other, other business interests is that we never lose touch with what it means to have to sign the front side of a paycheck and, and trying to run a business and deal with regulations and taxes and all those decisions that, that we pass. And you know, like here, I, the only business that I have uh, that I've had now for a few years actually is just my law practice. 
and that's, that keeps me pretty busy, but it is, uh, uh, it's a great job and I enjoy being the speaker and, and actually enjoy practicing law too. So one thing before we let you go, a personal point of privilege, I'll give you the opportunity to tell people about your new deputy chief of staff, who is a, a fellow Appalachian state alum and a fraternity brother of mine and a, a wonderful, wonderful guy who loves trains. I was going to say that anyone that, on this planet, his knowledge of trains is just out of this world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, d- definitely trains would be a uh, Dan's kryptonite, I guess. So yeah. So yeah. So Dan Gurley, who, uh, uh, who I've been uh, friends with since uh, he was at Appalachian and I was at Chapel Hill. He, of course, was our was the political director of the state party. The executive director was uh, was the chief of staff to Congressman Cass Ballinger on, on Capitol Hill. I mean, just a very talented and just a sincerely good guy who has been on our staff and just very thrilled to have him as our deputy chief of staff uh, who really cares about uh, not just Western North Carolina, rural North Carolina, but all of North Carolina. So, uh, glad to have him there. He's doing a great job, and uh, you'll, you'll make his day whenever uh, he, he hears it. You gave him a shout-out like this. and uh, uh, But, yeah, if you, if you ever want to know anything, it's a funny story. Uh, I'll be traveling somewhere around the state either for official business or campaign business, and I can be at the most obscure railroad crossing in the middle of nowhere and, and take a picture of, like, maybe a train or of, like, a – depot or something and say, where am I? And, and he doesn't know where to say where I'm traveling. And usually within the next two minutes, he can say, oh, you're in whatever, you're in Spencer, North Carolina, or you're in you know, Duplin County. And that's the so-and-so uh, tra- or train line that used to run. It's, it's, it's kind of scary almost really, but oh yeah. But uh, great guy does a great job. And so, uh, and you know what? And hey, look, I've always found that the Appalachian folks never let you down. Well, I mean, most of them. Um, so I'm definitely going to be putting in a good word to the Biden administration in case they're looking for someone to head up Amtrak. There, you know what? If, if anybody could do it, he could do it. Real quick, uh, last rapid fire round, just real quick punchlines before we let you go. I forgot I did want to ask this. First, thank you for inviting me um, to join the um, your speaker's uh, House Select Committee on Criminal Justice Reform. Give me just one punchline of why you wanted that exercise to occur? You know, given the, given the climate, particularly as it was after everything happened with, with George, with George Floyd, and then the, the rising tensions, I thought it was, and, and I, and I still think it's important that everyone understand that those of us in government are paying attention to this issue, that we, that, that there's no excuse for the, the bad things that have happened out there. Uh, but that it's also important not to overgeneralize in, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, I also think that our, our law enforcement, frankly, need and deserve the support out there as well. Uh, they have been uh, unfairly and, and uh, targeted and attacked in a lot of ways. And it would, that's, why, that's why whenever it came in the campaign season and some of the, and again, I don't want to be partisan, but when I started seeing some of this defund the police thing, I thought at first I said, surely this is real. This really did not People were not saying this. And then more and more I would see it. And I, I saw it and I'm like, this is, people actually think this is a good idea. You're seeing less and less that being talked about, at least by folks in elected office, because I think people realize that it would be a really bad idea if you didn't have law enforcement out there. That's just kind of a, that ought to be a basic thing. Uh, and so there ought to be a way to have a real frank conversation about, are there things that can be done that, that improve uh, perception as well as 
the actual functions when it comes to an administration of law enforcement, but at the same time, make it clear that we always want to support those who every day get up, uh, put on a badge, put on a bulletproof vest, put on a gun, leave their families and go out there to do what they can to keep uh, those of us on this call and those of us listening and everyone else safe. And, and I think that is something that we need, that we need to do in the, and any of us in elective office really ought to try to, to do that. So two more rapid, that was a little more complex than a rapid fire one deserved. I realize that now. These are simple. One, your biggest election night surprise this year, since this is our election uh, episode, um, really anywhere, but particularly state or local. Um, anything that surprised you? The, I was surprised at how well the statewide Republican judicial candidates did uh, running the, uh, the, the sweep there like that. You, you just, you don't, you don't ever expect to see a perfect night in anything. And, and I got to say the other, the other elections in terms of how the legislative seats perform uh, really weren't surprises. We saw the wins that we had coming. And frankly, we saw the, the losses that the couple of losses that we had coming as well. On the council of state, we saw, um, I, I saw those turning out frankly the way they did. So those were the surprises. I think the, what's been interesting is I'm like, I'm like so many other Americans, I continue to watch this uh, as the presidential thing just keeps playing out. And it's just such amazingly um, um, uh, unprecedented territory, at least in any of our lifetimes. But I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this and to the folks who are watching, if you think about some of the just bizarre things that have happened in our lifetimes, just over the few years, I mean, it's like, it's like somebody took all these like crazy science fiction movies and kind of said, let's start playing them out in 2020. I mean, everything from the, of course, COVID-19 to what was it, the murder hornets and then all the you know, craziness of this campaign season and just, I mean, lockdowns. I mean, think about it. if somebody had said two years ago that, that the government was going to say you had to wear a mask or you had to, you, you were going to shut down the restaurants or you couldn't go to church. A lot of us would have probably laughed and said, that's crazy talk. It's not going to happen. And so the, the things that we've seen and we've dealt with in the last 12 months have just almost been surreal at times. And, and it's kind of hard to, it's, just, it's hard to believe some of it's really happened, I think. I think a lot of us who have served in office maybe years from now may have some PTSD with all this stuff to deal with. But it's certainly been some tough times. But you know what? And I know this is, I'm getting way off subject here, but the, What's been amazing to me, guys, is how even with as bad and as tough as things have been and as divided as the election got, is that I can sense right now things kind of coming back together. Folks are calming down. We're getting into the holiday season. At the end of the day, I'm seeing that aside from everything we did with everybody knows that we are all Americans, that we're, you know, that we need to have each other's backs. Doesn't matter if we agree or disagree, but we're all in it together. Uh, and we need to all be here for each other because uh, we, we, we just owe it to each other to try to just make this a great place. We, ought, we just saw a comment we here on Facebook. Better, we better figure it out. This comment for Facebook says uh, from Ray McKinnon, friend of ours, uh, about as bleeding heart of a liberal as I know. And he says, I'm actually enjoying this conversation. So, see, we can even surprise liberals in, in having uh, conversations with the speaker here. Your final uh, lightning round question is Representative Jason Sane. Just how high is this guy going to go? Is, is it president? Is it something above president? What, where is he headed in your opinion? 
I'm trying to do. Do you spell czar C Z or T S? I've seen it both ways. I'm not sure, but you or, know, or is it back in the other direction to Lincoln County dog catcher? You know, he. I well, certainly he's already the czar of Lincoln County. It's a question of how far he goes beyond. They may try to like annex like all of Lake, you know, all of Lake Norman or something. I don't know. No, I'll tell you, Jason is absolutely amazing. He is. Uh, he's our senior appropriations chair, so he has like the ultimate checkbook. Right? He's got a. He's got a checkbook with a $24 billion roughly in it. It's pretty strong. And uh, he does a great job. He has been a, a, a somewhat bad influence on my sons, though, because I've seen him, along with one other person on this show, won't say any names there, Tark, but, you know, that playing these, playing, was it Call of Duty in some of these games? And so as a guy who, as the guy here who's stroking the check for tuition at State in Carolina, it's good to see. Uh, that, uh, that, that my sons are taking classes from Professor Sane and Professor Bakari about Call of Duty and these other things. So uh, I just hope it translates to a well-paying career when they graduate. They're far, far better than us at those games. I promise you that. And to Representative McCray, Sane is molding the, the future of our country and our youth. There you McCray go. and I are now brothers. We're Sigma Nu brothers, by the way. Ah. So congratulations there. Speaker, thanks. We kept you over a little bit, but that was a really interesting and, and fun conversation. So, sir, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining I, us. I, well, I, did, I actually had a question. Who, how'd you guys get the picture with Flavor Flav? I'm really jealous on that one. I got to say, that's... That was, just, that was just me, not Tark. I, I tell you, that's a, is, would that be considered a flex? I'm trying to learn something. Is that, is that a flex? Is that what that is? That was a that was a flex. It's actually Tark making fun of me because he thinks I look stupid in the picture. I so found he, the picture, he, he and now I just posted on everything that I can. With I, you him. know, I, I'm actually I'm actually impressed. I mean, you you're, you're stat and you you're you're up there now. If he'd had the clock on, you'd really have it. You'd, you'd have yeah. it nailed. But uh, that's a that's a longer story than we've got time for. But I'll tell it to you over a beer sometime. You got it. Hey guys, I appreciate y'all having me on. Thanks, Thanks man. We appreciate you being here. Take care. Nice. Ray is correct. It is a weird flex. Um, well, it wasn't a flex because you put it in there to make fun of me. I didn't ask you to put it in there to flex. It's a shade but, flex. What's that? But I'm, I'm a bit impressed that Speaker Moore know who's, knows who Flavor Flav is. Dude, he's, he cited Biggie Smalls. Yeah, but everybody knows that one. I tell you, well, okay. Well, the Speaker of the House knows that. I think that's impressive. Um, that was a cool conversation. That was very it cool. was. Um, you know, I... The thing that I thought was, and again, and you, you and I talked about this before we talked to him, I know he sees the value that Charlotte is as an economic engine because he's, he's nearish to it uh, geographically. I do still think, I mean, this is not, I'm not charting new territory here, but I, I do still think that if we went and met with the different representatives and senators in the legislature from those Northeastern North Carolina counties, I, I just wonder if they'd have that same, that same understanding. And to be fair, if you and I went and visited those counties up in Northeastern North Carolina, I think we'd be surprised at some of the challenges they're facing that maybe we couldn't even fathom just sitting here in Charlotte. So. No, no, I, I listen that, I mean, obviously one, he's closer, but two, he's the speaker, right? So he, I mean, he has, he has, to, he has to kind of coordinate amongst all of them. I mean, there's no doubt. I think it's a half, it's a half mixture probably of too far away to really feel that all boats rise impact, even though they probably recognize it's true to some extent paired with also, I won't call it Republican Democrat. I think I'll just refer to it as some kind of mixture of conservative 
versus liberal, rural versus urban, in the sense that, you know, look at the last decade, look at some of the fires we've had between these places and how urban and rural just continue to divide, divide, divide. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. My other big takeaway is, you know, I appreciated the answer. I hope it, it manifests into action between Speaker Moore, um, Senator Berger, who leads the, the state Senate, and Governor Cooper in terms of if it's not a full Medicaid expansion, that they find some way to, to meet in the middle on that because it, there's never been a time where it's more critical for more of our citizens to have health care. And he, he even mentioned um, how much pain some of the rural hospitals are feeling and how important those are to those communities. And me Medicaid expansion or some version of it uh, would greatly benefit those rural hospitals. So I, I think that's the single biggest thing that the three of them as the leaders of this state, again, I know none of them wanted to be stuck with each other again, um, but they are. And I think if that could be uh, a real crowning achievement for all three of them, if they could find a way to, to make some headway on that. Election. Election 2020. Uh, let's go to the big, let's go to the big board. When are you going to, when are you going to create a big board for us that I can touch screen and I can be up there? Like we're going to need a few more viewers, but I, I'm telling you, we could do that. I've been watching those big boards now for, for months. So here, I could operate that. Thing. Here's a fun thing for you. Um, just last night, watched a documentary called 537 votes. It was about the Gore Bush recount in Florida. Um, really interesting. I was not paying all that much attention in 2000. Obviously knew it was going on, but didn't know all the different things that were kind of playing into it. Some bizarre parallels to 2020 and what we've seen in the last three weeks since uh, this election in the presidential race. But, um, but maybe one of the most amusing things that I think you'll enjoy if you go and watch it, it's on HBO, is the big boards that they were using in 2000. I mean, it looked like an Atari it looked like the screen on like Pong. I'd like to see that. And so that that made me feel like, I don't know, it really drove the point home of how long ago, 2000. Yeah, for anyone who thinks this is nuts, it's just a different kind of nuts. Like, remember back to that, right? That was nuts. It wasn't, we still, in this timeline we're at now, did not know who the president was in that, uh, in that 2000 race. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some key differences one being that it was of course there's difference one state i mean you're just looking at florida uh, and so imagine all the attention that's been put on michigan and nevada and georgia and some of these states imagine it all being focused on georgia or whatever i mean this was all one state i mean all the eyes were on florida um they were you know what i mean one county at the end of the day right Back then. Yeah, I mean, it, anyway, it's a really interesting um, look back at something that as an 18-year-old, I wasn't nearly um, in the weeds on, just kind of aware that there was a recount going on. We didn't know the president was, but um, there's a lot of detail there. And there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, Elian Gonzalez, the, the young boy from Cuba, and how much of a role that played in shifting the, the way that the Cuban-Americans in Florida felt about um, the Clinton-Gore administration. Just fascinating stuff. So what's anyway. the recap? What's the recap? On, right. like, what, what is the punchline? On we did the last episode, we did a preview of what's to come, right? So what's and the? I went back and listened because I thought I said, I feel like, and again, I wasn't charting new territory here. This is being said by pundits all across the country. But I, I said on there, I said, I don't think we're going to know who the president is on election night. We didn't. I went to bed thinking there was a 50-50 chance 
of who was going to win. Um, I said, I hope the networks will be patient in trying to make these calls. Uh, you scoffed at me and said they will not be patient, but they were. And they weren't. It was good that they were. And one of the things in that 537 votes uh, documentary is one of the networks, and I won't say which because you'll scoff at me chastising a particular network. Um, one of them decided to call the election very quickly, uh, much quicker than anybody else was. It triggered a lot of the other networks to call it. And then that set the narrative for how the rest of this thing played out. So why do they need to call it at all? Why are they in this position? Because one thing we learned from the 2000, one thing, one thing we learned from the 2000 election, I think that all of the candidates for president at that level strategize based on now, which is there is a swaying factor in the court of public opinion in this that ends up sealing it up. So I think obviously they were all waiting for Fox News because they wanted it to be a Fox News said it first, therefore everything like, you know, it is what it is. And they, and they came out and did that. But what, like, why is it later or to have that? So it, it, I, that's one thing that annoys me about all this. Like, wait until well, the end. Like, what's the dire rush? Well, the end is so like, the end is like five or six yeah. weeks later that yeah. people are not going to accept the idea that no one has any clue which way the election's going. And frankly, a transition is supposed to start even before the electoral college goes in and votes, or even before these things are certified, you're supposed to start the transition. So no one would accept the idea that like this whole thing's a secret until six weeks later, that would actually probably cause more distrust because they'd go, Oh, they're all in some smoke filled room and they're going to, you know, we're going to smoke's going to come out of the chimney like the Vatican when they've decided who the president is. Mm. So, I mean, I'd rather it be done out in the open. But I did think that the, the out media outlets were responsible in, in saying, we don't know yet, and these states are too close to call. Uh, and it took days. It was, what, Saturday, I think, before Fox News and AP, I believe, were the first so two to call. Let, let, since we're on this one, let's make a point. On, let me make a point on this. We'll back and forth it, and then we'll just spend a few more minutes on other races. And then you and I will get back, hopefully for the rest of our lives, lives never talking about national politics again. Or just Donald Trump in general. Well, so I'm going to make this comment, just a personal perspective, and it is not about Donald Trump, the person. It's just about, I'm going to try to explain to you, in my words, why I think, why I see there is frustration and and how, hopefully you can understand like, and and empathize with this level of kind of frustration of of confusion that I think a lot of people, and a lot of people voted for, for Trump, but again, this isn't about Trump, it's about the process, which is you've got four years, right? Plus a year before that of relentless attacks, not my president, not my president, attack, attack, attack. And then over that four year period, I went from uh, mainstream media is a little bit kind of like um, biased, <laughs> I'm being gentle there, to the year over year, I got to a point, and I, th- I know many did, where I felt like, this is like all out war. Like they, they're not even pretending to hide it anymore. So there's, there's one dynamic of media and how they've kind of pushed it. And another dynamic of the other side in this team fight that's going on, that's been saying, not my president the whole time. And I'm not making a case for Trump right now. I'm just making the, the, the groundwork for how a lot of people probably feel right now. So now we get to this point in the election where it's, you know, it's, it's being called by the, by the media groups where there's a, a sense of distrust 
Voter fraud has been a question with not a lot of data points, but something that we know exists. And in my business, my old business of risk management and things like that, one of the important things is we plan for the scenarios, the tail event scenarios, the black swan events that ruin democracy, that ruin everything, even if they haven't happened yet, right? Fraud could be a thing. And then we pump it up full of a brand new dynamic of mail-in voting ballots. And we on our history, in our own backyard here, have seen a McCray Dallas. And while that was a Republican, right, he used to be a Democrat back in the day. And this kind of voter ballot harvesting wasn't something all of a sudden in the last two years he came up with. He's been doing that, and it's been cited over there for years, if not decades. So I think all that builds up to a point where now they're like, well, hold on a second. A brand new influx of millions of votes, right, have now come in. and you're saying it's not a thing, but I think there could be and media and everyone's like, stop it and just move forward. Now the same people who were like, not my president for four years and now it's supposed to be gotten over with. You see how, you see how all of these things kind of weave together where now all of a sudden this lack of trust is kind of at the core of all of that. Isn't like a fringe group of people. It's literally almost half the country. Well, and it, like every discussion now, has been distilled down to something so binary that it's absurd. And the idea that that there is not a single flaw in our election system is obviously absurd. Of course, it's anything that's that big uh, and has that many different touch points and that many different agencies involved in it, of course there are flaws, of course it can be improved. And of course somebody found a way to, to try to circumvent it and cheat the system. Um, but then on primarily right now on my side of the aisle, people are laughing at so many of these accusations because so much of it is so unfounded. And you've got Rudy Giuliani going out and looking like a, a crazed person talking about fraud and offering no proof whatsoever and simply just saying, well, these states that Donald Trump lost by close margins, which he only won by close margins four years ago, that's where the fraud is. And I offer no proof, but I just, that's where the fraud is. In Michigan, he won, you know, Biden won by by over a hundred, well over a hundred thousand votes, and they're trying to claim fraud. So when, when, how can you say there's no evidence when he didn't offer any process? Like he doesn't need to cut. That that's the whole point. You don't have to go and win the court of public opinion, and that's one of the other things that annoys me about this is a threat to democracy. Every freaking news program and mainstream media that I see, he's attacking our democracy, all this stuff. Yet the last four years weren't an attack on democracy. But suddenly this is- There's a difference between- them going through what is in our constitution. Our constitution enables these paths. So at the end of this process, if no evidence is found, which we're seeing evidence, the question here's, is- Here's is the difference. Off or is it- It's not the same thing for people who- feel strongly about Donald Trump saying to say not my president and for Donald Trump who is the president to say there's fraud just because he didn't win a state. The fact of the matter is Hillary Clinton called and conceded to Donald Trump the day after that election in 2016. Don, Hillary Clinton never came out and said not my president. Fraud back then. <laughs> like they were like ah well we did it and didn't win right. I'm kidding. The, the idea that that's the same thing is is not is, <laughs> I, so what, so what I would be better okay, than that. So, so let me ask, what would be okay for him to do? Because he's got the media that's against him. If he sh if he shuts up, that's one thing. But is he allowed to is he allowed to shut up and not tweet or talk, but still go through the process and say I'm not accepting these results yet until the legal process that's afforded to me in the Constitution is finished? 
that's what Gore did. And so, again... But nobody claimed victory back then. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they did. Wow, you just walked the freaking documentary. Well, no, and, and you should go pressure on your mind. I don't know. It is. And I, I wouldn't have remembered all these details, but for having watched that last night. But he did. Gore conceded at first. They realized there was irregularities in Florida. He called Bush back. It was apparently very contentious, and I can only imagine it was an awkward conversation. said, I'm rescinding my concession because I want to wait and see what happens here in Florida. And so they did. They went on weeks, and, and some networks called Florida and then had to retract it. And, I mean, it was a mess. So, so a concession and a revocation of a concession is clearly different than 20 years of learning from that and the court of public opinion and them saying, we're going to pause long enough to look like we're the elder statesmen. Then Fox News is going to be the one to say it first. Everyone's going to follow, and then we're going to claim that we've won, and everyone's going to say, president-elect, president-elect. I'm not saying he didn't win. I'm not saying he's not the president. And, I, and I'm not saying, hey, let's take up for Trump. All I'm saying is, like, it's just the inconsistency in the double standard that more holistically, if we don't get a hold of it and stop the cycle, it's just going to whip back and forth and get worse and worse and worse to where I hate to see what the country looks like in 50 years if it even exists anymore. Well, I just – you can't compare – when the president says or does something, it, it's a different level than when just citizens do. Citizens are always going to say, you know, that Biden's not the president or Trump's not the president or whatever they want about Obama or Hillary or, or whoever comes after these folks. But it, that there has to be a tone set at the top. And as disappointed as Hillary was, she did concede when it was clear Trump won. With, with Gore and Bush, they both, after that first kind of awkward night of back and forth, let the process play out. Now, again, you're watching the documentary, the process was flawed, but they let it play out. They didn't try to say, oh, this is, you know, this is all fraud. Something went wrong here or say that all the states they lost, there must've been fraud, but all the states they won miraculously, there wasn't. Um, it, it is different. And I just think, again, I hope that, that a lot of that ends with Trump's departure, but I, I fear that it won't. Let me um, ask one final question. Is it possible not is it proven, not is it factual, but just is it possible in your mind that there is a political party that shares almost organically grassroots bottom up across their networks for decades in a row practices that some might be considered gray, some might be borderline illegal and unethical, where they are maximizing the number of people that wouldn't have otherwise voted unless they did those things they're doing and they built a machine out of it. Is that something that is possible in your mind? I'm not sure I entirely follow your question, but I think there have been people far more academically qualified to study the issue than either of us or, or most anyone who's a pundit about the issue that have looked and looked and said, there are absolutely instances of voter fraud but they are not widespread. And, and that doesn't mean that those I'm things- I'm not saying voter fraud, not provable. I'm just saying McCray Dallas did this for decades and there was never a data point in this one micro example of proven fraud until literally the whole world fell down. And that's just one case. Well, All I'm the whole world. And I, I mean, that was, that was not, I don't know how many votes he harvested or how many ballots he harvested there. That was, was a practice yeah. that had gone on for decades. They're, the people in the board of elections around that stuff, they had said, we've been raising a red flag. The one guy who kept raising it and finally made a stake, he'd said he'd been raising it. There have been irregularities forever. 
And so all and, I'm and saying that is, should be root, that stuff should be investigated and rooted out. And it was in that case. And, and he had done it for both parties. Absolutely. I want to open your eyes to say, to make, to, to not to prove any point other than give you the perspective of a lot of people on the other side of this right now and how they're feeling. And it's just like, well, you're like, there's no fraud proven. And they're over here like, well, that's the point. It hasn't been proven yet. And then there's this micro example of McCray Dallas who did it for the Democrats and then did it for the Republicans as he transitioned over for years, if not decades. And there was never a data point there. But, but if, Biden wins Michigan, if Biden wins Michigan by 140,000 votes or whatever he won by, and you can't offer, and I don't mean you, but if Rudy Giuliani can't offer a specific example of fraud and yet he's acting like Trump somehow won Michigan, so, I mean, again, you can't, you can't make a claim like that. And when it's 537 votes in Florida, then there's going to be some crazy fighting because literally each one of them, I mean, they're, they're could swing on, on one precinct. I, I don't disagree. Them. And in fact, I don't, I don't at this point person, I, I rarely ever share my opinion on Trump related matters, even though everyone thinks I do. I, I will share it with this. I don't believe that he um, makes it and, and makes the case to be to continue being president i think biden will be i president. think that's a, a pretty safe bet yeah but listen think about it like a rico case right no one's going to go and prove here's the number of votes that are fraudulent in the end of the day but what you do is you like a rico case you say it's 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 multiple efforts that will not get to the bottom of now right it's like russia collusion right like it's things are if things are being done we have to root that out by the controls we put in place around voting, not necessarily being able to find how many McCray Dallas's exist in the system. That's all. Awesome. All right. I'm going to make up all the time we just wasted talking about Trump. Right. By bam, bam, bam. Recapping yeah. council state quickly, which is to say that I think uh, we, we were right now. I, I was actually surprised a couple of things, how close some of these were, um, you know, 14,000 votes, in the uh, case of, well, we'll get to the judicial in a second. Some of these were very, very close, but it was a good, it was a good day to be an incumbent on the council of state. Every incumbent won Republican and Democrat. We suspected that that might be the case. Republicans actually swept all of the open seats. So uh, Lieutenant governor was an open seat. Um, labor was public instruction or education was um, Republicans swept all of those. And then I think, so there weren't any big surprises there. Cooper won big-ish. I mean, four and a half points was big compared to all these other council of state races, um, most of which were like one or two or three points. The statewide judicial races really surprised me with um, Republicans sweeping those three, including beating an incumbent. Of course, the, the chief justice seat, you had an incumbent against an incumbent. Um, I was a bit surprised. Now that one, uh, you talk about a recount in a close race. Uh, that one now is like a 500 vote difference. Literally, if you look at the state board of election site, it's showing them at 50% and 50%. And it, it goes down to a hundredth of a percent. It's not even separated by a hundredth of a percent. That's still going on as a recount. Everything else has been um, certified at this point, except for that one. Right now, Paul Newby's leading um, and and will quite possibly be the new chief justice of the state Supreme court. So statewide, was there anything that stuck out to you? I mean, I, I think the speaker said it. Wow. Which is like, 
when you look at judges and you look at the council of state, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's a serious W right on that side. But then it's, it goes back and it's more questions I have of like, you and I have been saying this on the pod for a while now, which is, and you started saying it in fairness, which is, you know, historically North Carolina has a track record of choosing and jumping back and forth across the ballot. Right. But like to see a Roy Cooper to win at the margin that he won over Dan Forrest, but then to see a Mark Robinson and uh, folks like that with, with theirs, it's just, it's kind of head scratching and you wonder what, what drives some of that. So there, there was, um, and there was some drop off. And there was a lot of people who were saying, well, how does Donald Trump win? And then Roy Cooper wins. There's some drop off from president to governor. And then as you go down ballot, people just kind of quit voting. Um, but also I think, Name ID was really, was and usually is really important in these races. Uh, it's why you saw all incumbents win that ran for re-election, no matter which party they were in. Um, in a race like Lieutenant Governor, you had two people who were not as well known. So I think there's an opportunity for someone like Mark Robinson to win. Um, but it also, you know, and it, it would be interesting to see how many people actually voted like half and half in the Council of State races across party lines. But you know, it does lead you to wonder whether there are people, you know, we are surrounded by, largely surrounded by partisans who will vote for their party and occasionally wander across for one really good person in the other party or one really bad person in their own party to vote against them. But it, it does beg the question of whether there's a lot of people out there who aren't as engaged in partisan politics as some of, as we are, um, that genuinely want a balanced government so that it doesn't, it doesn't veer too far to the right or to the left. And if they're saying, well, you know, if, if I vote for half Republicans and half Democrats, then I don't have to worry about it getting too far out of whack one way or the other. Does it? Yes. Does that exist? I'm sure it does. At a scale that we'd see these kinds of results. It's just like when I meet people and, I, and you and I are more plugged in than- It wouldn't than have to be that big a scale though. I mean, you're talking about like 100,000 votes separating these races. So it only take a handful of people to, to say that's how they want to vote. Oh man, I don't know about that. It's, I mean, it's several, you're telling me there are several hundred thousand people that are like, you know what? I want balance. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't feel strongly one way or the other. It just seems... It wouldn't, it wouldn't be several hundred thousand, though. In, in some cases, you're talking about it would take like 50,000 or 100,000 voters to feel that way to get these margins. Who sits there and says, I'm a big Roy Cooper fan, but I'm also a big Mark Robinson fan? <laughs> like, I, like I, I'm sure maybe that exists a little bit, but usually if you are a big fan of Mark Robinson you hate Roy Cooper <laughs> and probably vice versa. Yeah. I mean, that one, the Mark Robinson one is the hardest to wrap your head yeah, around. 2.8 million votes. Which is Roy only 34,000 less than Roy. Yeah, 34,000 so, less than, but he beat Dan Forrest by a freaking mile. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of Republicans and, and I don't know enough about this to, to speak on it much, but there are people who are saying Dan Forrest didn't run a great campaign. Um, and that's Republican you know, pundits and operatives saying that he didn't run a great campaign. I don't know exactly why they feel that way, but. Um, I didn't see enough. I've heard that muttered a couple times. I saw him a few times in Charlotte. Um, I know he had some really talented people on his staff, but at the end of the day, like I just, 
I assumed he spent a lot of his time elsewhere in North Carolina where the votes were really more impactful. And I just, you know, because of that geographic difference, we didn't get to really see what that looked like. So here's my guess before we move into the legislature. I think there, there are probably some people out there who didn't know who either of the people were for Lieutenant Governor, who didn't know who Mark Robinson or Yvonne Lewis Holly were. There obviously were a lot of those, I believe. I could see people saying, well, I'm going to balance. And, and also I would venture to guess most people don't know what the Lieutenant Governor of Arcana does. Uh, we're, you know, there's only a handful of states that even elect them as um, separately like we do. Oftentimes it's a ticket. I could see people wanting to balance that and saying, well, I, I feel like Roy Cooper's done a decent job handling COVID, but I want balance in government. So I'm going to vote for this Mark Robinson guy who has a generic sounding name and they probably didn't know anything about. And then I could see them coming down and looking and saying, well, Dale Falwell, I feel like he's done a good job. I haven't seen anything bad about him in the news. Elaine Marshall, she's been at Secretary of State and doing a great job for a long time. I mean, some of these people have enough name ID and have no baggage that when you look at Steve Troxler is going to be Commissioner of Agriculture as long as he wants. He's been there for a long time. He's never really had a, a, a story that painted him in a really bad light in a broad way. So people just feel comfortable with him and they stick with him. So I think there are people who reward these races that really shouldn't be that partisan and aren't as partisan all the time for just being there and not screwing anything up. And they're like, all right, well, let's keep that guy or gal. They haven't messed anything up yet. Um, any, uh, any other, before we jump into the county side uh, and local, anything else? Nothing on that. We did. So we'll do, obviously on a high level, the legislature stayed in Republican hands, um, the House and the Senate, neither neither even came close to flipping. Uh, I was not as optimistic as some that we were going to flip both chambers. I did think we had a decent chance of flipping one or the other. Um, and we really, we didn't make, we didn't make any headway at all. So um, that was obviously frustrating. As Speaker Moore said, it was a, a good night for the Republicans. And again, I think most people who were paying attention expected that Roy Cooper was gonna win. Um, in our case, mostly the, the people who won as Democrats in North Carolina were the ones that I'd have bet you a lot of money were going to win. We didn't have any real surprise victories, uh, much to my chagrin. Was there any surprise? I think uh, uh, beyond... There were, there were ones we knew were going to be close, and so you, it's hard to call that a surprise no matter which way it breaks. The, our Senate delegation of five members, um, though we, we should be adding a sixth once the new lines are drawn with the new census data, um, we're now five Democrats and no Republicans. Um, Rob Bryan did not run for re-election. DeAndrea Salvador, who we've reached out to and is gonna be on the show in the coming weeks um, so we can get to know her better. She will be replacing him. He didn't run for re-election. Jeff Jackson won pretty handily in what we thought could be close-ish. Uh, definitely the most competitive race he's ever run. I but was, he won, I was surprised that was such a- uh, He won by 13, 14 points. Uh, Senator Mustafa Muhammad, Joyce Waddell, Natasha Marcus all won easily. In the House, we went from a 12-0 Democrat um, delegation to 11-1, and you and I had spotlighted three races that we thought would be close. Um, the flip was John Bradford beating Christy Clark by right at 2,000 votes out of a total of like 60,000. That's up in North Wasn't Mexico. Bradford my, my number one pick? I don't recall, but I know that was, I mean, that was, I, I think. I could listen to your parts. Is that, is that what happened? I didn't have much time right before we recorded, but um, 
that one we knew was going to be close. It was extremely Bradford is now the most powerful person in the General Assembly from Mecklenburg. Hands down. We thought Brawley Hunt rematch was going to be close. That came down to less than 100 votes two years ago. It was not close. Uh, she won by almost 5,000 votes this time, almost 10 points. Um, that was interesting. The Brandon Lofton and Wesley Harris races we thought could be competitive were both like 4,000 vote victories for crazy. Lofton and Harris. I know Amy Biden was working really hard too. And to, to lose by nearly you know, 10 points is wild on that. Um, those were the only one. The rest of them were, were kind of shoe-ins. Carla Cunningham. Unopposed again. of the vote. Um, that's like, that's the second time I think she's been unopposed. Mecklenburg County, only one Republican won in Mecklenburg County. Uh, well, okay, so two. John Bradford and your friend Casey Visor won um, the district or Superior Court uh, judge seat over former Judge Alicia Brooks. Yep. Um, 43, uh, 46 to 53% uh, respectively. Democrats held the rest of those. County Commission, we had identified there were only going to be three things that were going to be interesting. Um, Susan Rodriguez McDowell won by about 1,500 votes over Joel Levy to, re to stay representing that South Charlotte, um, South Mecklenburg, District 6 on the County Commission. She's the one who unseated Bill James in 2018, um, which was wonderful. Um, we'll, we'll save the District 5 one for last. We thought Elaine Powell-Jim Puckett rematch, which was close two years ago, could be close again. Elaine absolutely mopped the floor of them. 12, that, that district votes. is done now. That district might as well take that up. 12,000 votes. That's and, you know, name ID for Jim Puckett is, is obviously super high. No That's one will win that district them. again. No one will win that district again. Um, that was that, – that, the, the outcome was not a surprise. The margin was stunning. Yes, um, very much so. And, and I don't know where, unless he has any interest in trying to run for a seat to go to Raleigh, I don't know where that leaves him, um, you know, if there's a, a path forward for his political career or if he's hanging it up. Um, Matthew Ridenour and Laura Meyer. Uh, Susan Harden, who beat Matthew Ridenour in 2018, did not run for re-election. Uh, Laura Meyer took her spot on the ballot and, um, and beat Matthew Ridenour by about 2,500 votes. Um, we thought that one was going to be close and, and that was the one that Republicans might really have a chance. Well, just, just one point before we close out on that one. Did you, you did, did you mention the Joel Levy thing? That was close. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was, a, I said about 1500 votes. Yeah. Um, that's, that's an interesting. I think that one's still just a, a redder district than I guess the North Mecklenburg. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. So that's definitely still in play. I mean, I think Susan Rodriguez McDowell um, didn't have any missteps in her first term. I think she, she's very likable. Um, if she had the, you know, the if she got herself out there enough to to beat um, to beat and now <laughs> Bill James, who had been there for twenty years, then you know, I think Joel Levy's a, a good guy. But I, I don't know that he had the name idea or the, the recognition. Um, to be able to come in and, and take that seat back. For so back to Matthew and Laura's, I mean, roughly give or take 2,500 votes separated it. Like, I mean, what, you know, was there something that, what, what, was there something that could have been done differently or have the of that district now left, left Republicans behind? 
I think it's just shifting. And, I, you know, there's a lot of overlap there, I believe. Matthew had name ID, a lot of positive yeah. name ID. Campaign super hard. Laura, while I'm sure she's, she's got a great background and everything, did not have name ID. And then it's you know, still, I'm just wondering she's if that. Plugged if in in Democratic, she, she's plugged in in Democratic circles. I think she had name ID there. I, but if you look at like the Brandon Lofton race, which I would assume probably most overlaps uh, of any of the house races with this county commission district. And Brandon solidly held off a Republican, a strong Republican challenger and well-funded Republican challenger. I think it's just demographic shifting. Um, I think it's not, you know, I don't know that you're, you're losing a voter who voted for you last time to the Democratic candidate. I think there's just more Democratic voters or more independents that are breaking left. Um, I think you're going to continue to see that. And I would imagine, um, you know, John Bradford took back his seat up in North Mecklenburg, but that seems to be, I mean, I think all of Mecklenburg is shifting, is becoming more blue and unaffiliated, and um, that's going to continue to benefit Democratic candidates. I mean, I think, you know, I'd be surprised in six or eight years if either your seat or Ed's seat are still Republican seats on city council. Oh, they, they won't be. Let yeah. me just go ahead and do a spoiler alert there. Um, I don't know. And it is interesting, and someone would, and I'm not sure I care enough to, to do this research, but it would be interesting to overlap these county districts and the city districts to figure out how y'all's two seats have have remained solidly Republican and these others have, have been picked off. Um, and if that is demographics or if it's just that you and Ed are so, uh, so cuddly and likable. That's one thing everyone says about me, likability. Um, the one thing I want to say about Matthew, and I've known Matthew for a long time. I know him personally as a friend. Our families know each other. I know him professionally. We've worked together, and I know him politically. And I'll just say, like, he is one of the most talented um, public servants that I, that I have come in contact with. He loves it. He's really good at it. He's great at constituent services. He's a big thinker. He knows how to work across the aisle. Um, it's just sad to see um, sad to see him lose that opportunity. I'm not trying to take away from Laura, right? She ran a, a hard race um, and, and she's there. But I, I, as I think about where Matthew goes next from this, um, I think, you know, it's kind of, I think he needs to not give up on it. I remember in 2009, after on the heels of two, two, two straight losses, I was done. I was done. And I mean, I literally didn't come back and even think about it or plug back into it in a material way for seven years. And I focused on family. I focused on business. What I kind of told Matthew is like, it's at some point, like this is so brutal of a, of a thing of a, of a blender that um, you kind of just got to refresh yourself, focus on something else for a couple of years. And then Matthew's the kind of guy that something's going to pop back up. He's going to see an opportunity to help, to give back, to do it. And then when that moment is right, he'll, he'll come back in. But the bottom line is here in Mecklenburg, we're in the final days of any seats existing. Uh, I, I personally think my, my seat is probably one of the last strongholds um, that, um, that are in its waning days compared to maybe one or two others that are there. So we're literally within five years of anybody with an R next to their name, much like Atlanta has been for 20 years now, not having any place locally to be elected. Um, and there's one freaking person in our delegation to the state at the state level. So it's really sad when you think of the great talent and leadership and folks we have, right? Which honestly, 
each year of year has gotten smaller and smaller because there's been less opportunities to plug them into. Uh, and it's just, I mean, we're on the path unless something drastically changed to being a one party town. And if everyone's like, no, it can't happen. It can't change that way. Look at Atlanta. <laughs> it's been that way. It can't happen. It's, it's almost already happened um, with just a few exceptions. I mean, there's five, six Republicans elected in Mecklenburg County right now. I mean, not counting the town councils. There's, there's still a handful there. And I think what do that- you think the Atlanta like area GOP looks like? Like, is it, they're not helping or plugged in to really anything serious at a municipal election level. They're working on maybe some state stuff, probably not national yeah. stuff. Once every four I, years. I assume their job is to turn out votes for congressional races and for statewide races. That's so sad. I mean, that I think a party is best. Is best. Well, there's also plenty of counties in North Carolina where. Democrats are in the same boat. They're not yeah, as but that's big. That's fine. That's Democrats. We don't care about that. There's plenty of counties where there's no elected Democrats. Oh, um, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Matt, Matthew's a great dude, and and he cares deeply about this community, and um, and I, I consider him a friend. I I will say he's getting he's getting a hard time for something, and I, I have pushed on him some on the tone of the way he's done it, but but the fact of the matter is he he has said, and I will and I will make note that he's prefaced this with he does not in any way think this would change the outcome of his race it was a 2500 vote margin uh she she clearly won the race he has identified some some people who voted at addresses that no longer exist my speculation would be and i think it's worth exploring and getting an answer to this question my speculation is those people have recently moved have not updated their registration and when they went in to vote that was what was on the rolls for them um, they should have updated their registration and early voted, or they you know, should have cast a provisional ballot, or you know they should have gone about it in the the way that um, that is set out to do that properly. My guess is that they just didn't, and they said, "Well, I haven't updated my registration. I'll just vote where I used to vote." Um, that said, if you found an address that isn't still an a address that has a a home on it, uh, and that person voted, I don't blame him for asking the question. Um, and again, being clear that he doesn't think that there are 2,500 of those out there, but he's just saying if we, it's not always going to be a 2,500 vote margin. It might've been a 25 vote margin. We're looking at a statewide race with the, the chief justice of the state Supreme court coming down to a couple hundred votes. So there's nothing wrong with going back and doing the analysis to, to root out what might not even be fraud or anything malicious, but might just be mistakes. And so to our conversation earlier, I don't have a problem with pointing out those places where we can improve the system or pointing out where there are flaws. Um, again, if we do it in a way that doesn't undermine the fact that the process by and large is working, uh, and I think that it is, um, or undermine the fact that Laura Meyer ran a winning campaign and that she deserves to be congratulated for that. Um, so I, I do take exception to some of the way that, that that's being portrayed as, as somehow being the same thing as what Donald Trump's doing, and it is not. Um, he lost the race, but he's asking some valid questions. He is not doing what Donald Trump's doing. He's not pretending that he won the race when he didn't. Um, it's apples and oranges. But you also, also to overlay on that, you have to realize, and I mean, I don't think you've ever lost an election, right? Who knows, baby? Yeah, for whatever. So you don't even know. It, I mean, you, when you lose an election, you've worked so hard for so long, and then it's all over. You didn't get the outcome. I mean... It is a thing, I'm sure. thing to rebound from. 
And, and I will say that literally to everybody who has lost, but particularly in this last cycle, who's, who's lost, just remember like we're in COVID and, and quarantine time, which is even worse for mental health right now. So just give yourself some grace. Like it's, it's okay. Like all you need is to put a little time between you and this. And it took me seven years, right? After 2009, I thought I was in. Like if you didn't think you were in and you were just doing it to do it, that's one thing. But if you thought you had a chance and you were in, that's a total different thing. And, and you just got to remember that, um, that, you know, everything happens for a reason, stuff like this. And just, just remember to, remember to take some time and everyone else that's around them, remember they're, they're going through a lot right now. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, I say that because I've been there. When some of the people that have gotten to the highest, you know, highest tops of the mountain politically have gotten their ass kicked at some point, I'm reading Obama's uh, new book right now. And it talks about how he ran for a congressional seat, which I either forgotten or didn't even maybe even know uh, in Illinois, he, he, was a state senator who decided to run for a congressional seat because he thought this incumbent was vulnerable and he got smashed. I mean, like 25, 30 point loss. And this is a guy who only a matter of, you know, a decade later is the president of the United States. So, you know, everybody at some point takes a loss and, um, and most people take multiple losses, but it's not, um, you know, running for office, win, lose, nothing to be ashamed of. So. You know what I like? I like the humbleness of people writing multiple autobiographies. That's just, that's kind of one of my things I like. Well, when, when you dedicate your life to public service, there's pretty much only one way to make or two ways to make money. One is writing books. The other is giving speeches. So maybe start writing some books like on policy or something else. Like you don't have to do my life, the sequel <laughs> part three. I'd, I'd say that uh, his life before being president and his life after being president are probably two different books. Whatever. Um, voters approved the bonds overwhelmingly 77%, uh, 78% and 77% respectively. Um, that was awesome, but expected. I'll tell you the, the scariest thing in this whole election in Mecklenburg County, there were four people. It is a nonpartisan race. So there's no letters next to the names. Four people ran to be a district supervisor on the Mecklenburg Soil and Water Conservation Board. Um, Rich George won. That's arguably who should have won. But he only won by 3,500 votes out of about 400,000, a little over 400,000 total. 3,500 votes. He beat David Michael Rice, otherwise known as Lord God King. This guy is one of the five craziest people that has run for office in Mecklenburg County in the last decade or two. He's run several times. He's run for mayor, I think for council, for soil and water. This guy, I guess, name idea is building as he continues to run these losing races. He got 108,000 votes, which really concerns me because 108,000 people, no one knows who this guy is and voted for him. There's zero this chance. Is, this is the problem. You could not have teed up what I believe the problem to be more perfectly, which is everyone's out there like, we need access to voting. And I'm, I know I'm going to get crap for saying this, but I, honestly, I, you're like, don't think. Dangerous don't think. I'm just, but on, I, I got to speak honestly on this. I, I, I think, I, well, I think it's not, hey, we need everyone to vote. I think it's everyone who takes an interest in this should easily be able to vote. But the problem is, and I think this is where when sometimes 
on one side of the aisle, your side, someone's like, when, when I raise something, they're like, oh, fraud or removing access or whatever. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, I think the real fraud is when people are, are herded, you know, in buses or in pushing them there or saying, you know, you've got to do your or peer pressure to say, where's your sticker? Did you vote? You did your duty when they don't know a single thing about what they're voting for. Well, and think, that is the what, problem. Uninformed electorates will be the death of this country. But I think that they, they know what they're voting for. They go in and they say they know. 108,000 people knew David Michael Rice was what they, they were know voting, what for. voting for at the top of the ballot is what I'm saying. They go in and they know who Trump is. They know who Biden is. They probably know, you know, Tillis and Cunningham, whatever. And they get down to soil and water and go, I didn't even know I was going to be on here. See, that's why here I got a real elegant solution for this, right? We I always, back before I was fully educated on this stuff, I always skipped these at the end. If I didn't know who any of these people were, I just skipped it. Well, because yeah, of course. But that is it. that's us who are like in the 0.01 nerd percent of all of this. Here's what the solution is. Very elegant, very simple, right? All the way down the, we make 100% of the population vote. We put it on their cell phone. Everyone can do it. Like there is no, we won't stop until there's 100%. But instead of people's names, like next to their name, it's not an R or a D. It's like, you have to match <laughs> what, which person said this thing? Which one is their position? You know what I mean? It's like that old exercise where if you don't know which one's for smaller versus bigger government or which one likes soil, but this one likes water. I don't know. Right. Like if you, like I'll let those candidates put what their, what their thing is. But if you don't know, like you can't come in there. Like you've got to, you got to pass the test. I'm sorry. That'll be a popular position, right? Yes. Um, I was just going to use this as an opportunity to encourage people to really do their research and to look at us. It's, it's really important to look at a sample ballot before you go vote, because on something this long, you're not going to get, you're not going to have heard anything about these folks. So being able to, to go the day or two before and say, Oh, there's a soil and water seat on here. Do I want to vote for that? And if so, let me take 10 minutes to look up these folks and what their backgrounds are because David Michael Rice should not hold any office in this community. 10 minutes. Who's got that kind of time. But it would take five minutes to look at these people and look that David Michael Rice has run for 18 different offices. And then he refers to himself as Lord God King and rule him out. I don't know much about the that's other two. All, that's all I'm saying, man. And, and this will be misconstrued. I am sure by the people out there who just want to misconstrue an attack. But my point is not limiting access. My point is it shouldn't be get out the vote. It should be educate yourself and go vote. You know what I mean? Because if Lord God, David Michael Rice King can come out and get that number of votes, something is wrong. Something is wrong. All right. So it's getting everyone out to vote and then making sure that they have ways to educate themselves about the races that aren't going to be on TV, the races that aren't going to be, you know, articles in the newspaper. This race is never going to get any attention, but it's still incumbent on us if we're, and again, you know, you choose these folks and you might say, well, it's soil and water, you know, how important is it? Well, A, that role is actually important. B, these lower roles that people don't pay attention to is where people get a start and either good people get a start and can move up the political ladder or bad people get a start and move up the political ladder. So, you know, if you don't, if you don't like good people at the bottom of the ballot, they eventually move up the ballot. So um, do your, do your homework was the moral. Final, final uh, election analysis point here. Um, all of the bonds. Don't like Lord God King. Lord God King. All the, all the bonds passed. Um, but interestingly, 
the largest vote getting bond was the neighborhood improvement uh, bond referendum with 326,000, trailing that by almost 5,000 less votes was the transportation bond, 321,000, and then trailing that by another over 1,000 votes, the housing bond. So I guess my question there is, well, it all passed resoundingly. Okay. I can explain the difference. There are 6,000 people out there who are so self-centered that they literally said, huh, neighborhood improvement, that sounds like it'll help me. Transportation, that sounds like it'll help me. Housing bonds, I don't need affordable housing. Hmm. That's the difference. I, I genuinely believe people looked at it as a, which of these will actually directly benefit me and which won't, and they okay, voted. But remember, uh, that's, that's an interesting point. I, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I guess because we always come in with a different lens. But what else would it be? I mean, because most people are either all, all three yes or all three no. Somebody is nitpicking these to figure out which ones they think actually directly benefit. Well, whoever those people are, at least they're nitpicking it, right? At least they're paying attention. I'll give them that credit. I don't necessarily agree with their premise, but, but I, I think that's important. That's an, another important point for us to remember here as we close this out, which is, um, which is we are in the echo chamber, in our bubble, in this world, and we think about these numbers and these elections, but people are, they're departing their day-to-day -day life of which most of them, this is not a part of it. They're not thinking about it. And for one split second or a couple split seconds, they're making these decisions. This is the majority though. Like I, it's important for us to understand the, if we call that the silent majority, because if we're going to solve problems, whether it's this or five other things we're not thinking of, um, it, too often we listen to the vocal super minority only. And we think that's the thing. There's a huge group of people out there that are in, in these numbers and we probably don't think about it enough. So uh, I just pulled up the ones from two years ago, exact same order. Neighborhood improvement was the top, then transportation, then housing. So I stand by my assessment. Huh. The thing that is encouraging though, is two years ago, it was 73, 69, 68. And, and we went up in all three. So I do think that that's good that I think more voters, we went up almost 10% in, in some of these. So I do think there's- Did we have, had we already had the, the cross Charlotte trail public debacle before or after that last election? After, right? I think it was after, but you're thinking that could have dragged it down. Well, no, I, no, I, mean, I was thinking we could have actually lost confidence uh, but no that's right this is the first one after that i think so we're making gains on help on and i think part of it is you're starting to see a lot of these projects um over this 10-year cycle of bonds start to come to fruition and as people see these investments and we do a good enough job of telling the story that hey these are your bonds at work as people see those and they realize oh this is great for our city more people are supporting it i hope now, that's i think it's that they trust the mayor and city council for the professionalism that we've shown them and just, just for, you know, the, the business approach we take to doing the people's biz. That has got to be it. All right. We, uh, yeah, so, so much for making this a short episode. We are an hour and 23 minutes in. And uh, that is the election in a nutshell. Thanks for voting. Thanks to Speaker Moore for joining us. Um, we will have our, our new state senator, Senator Salvador, on soon. Uh, we are coordinating that with her now. 
and uh, we were off for a couple of weeks from city council meetings. So it might be. When do we go back? Uh, I think in like two more weeks. So it'll, it'll probably be a couple more weeks before the episode. But uh, start of the new year, we'll try to get back in a, in a better habit of doing weekly. We keep saying that, but I mean, in COVID, it's just kind of it's just kind of different. whatever. Dude, it, it, that we're still alive and working. I think that's the only thing that you can expect during COVID. Well, we've got that for now. All right. Like, share, rate, do whatever else you can. Help spread the word. And uh, everybody enjoy your Thanksgiving. That was episode 107. Don't forget to do all those things. 